0: Good morning, please uh, join me again in prayer. Dear Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word this morning. We pray that we would submit ourselves to it. Father, we pray that these words would not just go in one ear and out the other, but, Father, they would penetrate our hearts. It would lead us to believe in them and to follow them and to trust them and to love them. Father, we pray that your spirit would be with us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we live in an age of skepticism. We live in an age in which people often doubt and question authority. Now, one recent survey of uh, people from multiple countries found that nearly 60% of people do not trust what they are told by government, business, and the media. A skepticism of religious authority or church authority is growing as well. Now, these used to be sources of authority that people listened to and trusted, but no longer. Now, sometimes that skepticism is earned. Authority figures can certainly prove themselves to be untrustworthy. But in today's world, it is often seen as a virtue to be skeptical of authority, whether or not it is deserved. It is seen as a good thing to question everything and to question everyone. But the truth is that all of this questioning of authority is not actually a sign that people are rejecting authority. No, instead it's a sign that people are simply changing their source of authority. Now whether or not they realize it, all people have a source of authority. Whether or not they realize it, all people have someone they listen to, something or someone who guides their behavior we all have a source of authority. The only question is who or what will it be? Now today, instead of looking at the government or business or media or even religion as a reliable source of authority, people are looking elsewhere. And increasingly, they're looking to themselves. Now much of our world preaches the message that you should listen to yourself and trust yourself. You, you are the highest source of authority. Now, how often have you heard this message? Just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. In other words, you do what you feel is right. Listen to the voice inside. Your feelings are the highest source of authority. Whatever you feel is right must be right. That's the message of every Disney music, movie. Just follow your heart. But church, that message is opposed to the message of the Bible. You should not follow your heart. You should not give your ultimate allegiance to any source of authority other than Jesus Christ. There is only one reliable source of authority that we can trust. Only one source of authority that we should truly listen to and follow. A Church, that is Jesus Christ and his word. It is that that should guide and shape our hearts. That's what we're going to find in our text for this morning, which comes from Luke chapter 20. You can go ahead and turn there with me in your Bibles. Church, this passage confronts you with the following questions. What is your own source of authority? What do you listen to? What is your own source of authority? Do you question or doubt Jesus' authority? Or do you accept and submit to his authority? Church, I have three points to help us consider those questions this morning. The first is questioning the authority of Jesus. That comes from verses 1 through 19. The second, questioning the wisdom of Jesus. Questioning the wisdom of Jesus. And that's going to be verses 20 through 40. And then third, Jesus questioning the authorities. Jesus questioning the authorities. That's going to be verse 41 all the way through chapter 21, verse 4. But first, questioning the authority of Jesus. Look with me, starting in verse 1 of chapter 20. One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came and said to him, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Tell me was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know its origin. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you remember back to the end of Luke 19 from last week, Jesus had just thrown out those who were buying and selling in the temple. He was now in the temple teaching the people. Now, in Jesus, God had once again come to his holy dwelling, the temple. But what we find in our passage is that the religious leaders were not so happy to have him there. In fact, they challenged Jesus' very right to be in the temple. They asked, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Who gave you the right to drive these people out of the temple? Why should people listen to what you are teaching? They were questioning Jesus' authority. This was a a challenge. They refused to accept that Jesus is God, the one with all authority. We see their rejection. So Jesus responded with his own question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin? Now, Jesus was speaking here of of John the Baptist, who who came to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus by preaching a message of repentance of sins, to be baptized for the repentance of sins. Well, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, had not been baptized by John. They had rejected his authority. So if they said that John's baptism was from heaven, well, the natural question would be, well, then why did you not repent? why did you not get baptized by John? On the other hand, if they say John's authority, if that if John was of earthly origin or human origin, then the people might stone them because the people rightly believed that John was a true prophet of the Lord. So in his question, Jesus trapped the Pharisees. So they pled ignorance. They did not know. Well, the truth is that the Pharisees believed that Jesus' authority was a threat to their own position, to their own authority, to their own standing, in order for them to maintain their authority as the religious leaders of Israel. Well, they certainly couldn't say that Jesus has greater authority. Then they would have to listen to him. They would have to submit. But at the same time, they needed the good opinion of the people to keep their position and keep their authority. So their goal was not to seek the favor of God, it was to seek the favor of the crowds. Well, by his question, by his question, Jesus exposed the fact that the Pharisees did not accept the authority of God or his word. If they, had no, if they could not admit that John's authority had come from heaven, if they could not admit that, they would certainly not admit that Jesus' authority had come from heaven either. In fact, John was the one prophesied way back in the book of Isaiah who was going to prepare for the coming, the one who was going to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. So if they're not going to believe that John is that person who's preparing for Jesus, they're certainly not going to believe who Jesus is either. So in his question, Jesus was really asking them, do you believe that my authority comes from heaven or not? Jesus was really asking, well, who do you say I am? And friends, that is a question that not just the Pharisees needed to answer. That's a question that each and every one of you need to answer. Who is Jesus? Who do you believe Jesus to be? Now, if you truly believe that Jesus is the divine and eternal Son of God, the one who created all things, you will submit to his authority. Your life will give evidence that you believe this because you will produce the fruit of righteousness. But if you believe that Jesus was just a man, even a really good man, even a super wise man who had great teachings, but just a man, well, you'll feel free to reject and question his authority and his word. Every time his word rubs up against something that makes you a little uncomfortable or would have to change your life, you'll feel free to push it to the side. Friends, by rejecting John, the Pharisees had already shown that they had rejected the authority of the Lord. And the parable that Jesus tells in verses 9 through 19 simply highlights this point. Look at verse 9. Now he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time he sent a servant to the farmers so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the farmers beat him and sent him away empty handed. He sent yet another servant, but they beat that one too, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty handed. And he sent yet a third, but they wounded this one and threw him out. When the owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? Then the owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, This is the heir let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, they said, that must never happen. But he looked at them and said, "Then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour, because they knew he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Uh, Friends, this parable is about Israel's rejection of the Lord, and most specifically the rejection of the Lord uh, on behalf of Israel's leaders, their rejection of the Lord. That's who the tenant farmers in this parable represent, the religious leaders of Israel. As we read earlier from Isaiah 5, the image of the vineyard represents Israel itself. Uh, specifically, it represents their privileged position in the kingdom of God, their privileged position as the people of God. Now, God had set his love on Israel, he had entered into a covenant with them, he had given them his law that they might obey. But look at verse 10. They were called to produce fruit. They were expected to produce good fruit, righteousness, and obedience. The problem was that Israel and its leaders consistently disobeyed the word of the Lord. They turned their back on the God who loved them. They did not produce good fruit. Instead, they produced unrighteous fruit, evil actions. They rejected the Lord. But God, in his kindness, sent prophets to Israel. That's who the servants are in this parable, the prophets that over hundreds of years went to to Israel. He sent prophets to Israel to call them to repentance. However, as you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that Israel, and especially its leaders, they refused to listen to the prophets. There were times that they even beat them and murdered them. And by rejecting the prophets, Israel was rejecting the authority of the Lord. And so sometimes, I've got four children, I might send one of my kids to go call all the other kids to to come. Uh, Come, assemble, gather to me. Uh, But sometimes the rest of those kids may not really like to listen to their brother. Uh, They don't really want to listen when their brother says, hey, you know, it's time to come. But what are they really doing if they don't listen to their brother if I've sent that brother to call them? Uh, They're failing to submit to my authority. Well, so it was with Israel and the prophets. By rejecting the prophets, they were rejecting the Lord. And though Israel rejected the prophets in his loving kindness, God still chose to send his son, Jesus Christ, even though he knew that Israel would reject Jesus as well. And throughout his ministry, the religious leaders of Israel did reject Jesus. And their rejection of Jesus would reach its climax at the cross when they turned Jesus over to the Roman authorities to be crucified. Friends, it was the ultimate rejection of God's authority. So look at verse 16. As a result of their rejection of the Lord, Jesus said that the vineyard would be taken away from Israel and given to others. The kingdom of God would instead be given to the Gentiles at least those Gentiles who would submit to the authority of the Lord. And so instead, instead of Israel receiving the blessing of the Lord, they would receive the judgment of the Lord. Those listening to Jesus understood exactly what he was saying, and so they objected, the crowds objected and said, that must never happen. Israel could never lose its privileged position in the, the kingdom of God as God's chosen people. This could never happen. But notice what Jesus did next. Jesus stood on the authority of the word of God and he quoted from Psalm 118 and said this. Then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then after quoting Psalm 118, Jesus went on to say, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. A church, as the scholar Tom Schreiner writes, the builders who reject the king, the son, the cornerstone, are the Jewish leaders. Jesus is the cornerstone of the new people of God. And if the leaders reject him, they forfeit or give up their place in the people of God. By rejecting Jesus, the cornerstone of God's new temple, his new people, they have sealed their own fate. If they fall and stumble over the cornerstone, they will be smashed to pieces. And if the stone falls on them, they will be destroyed. Church, the point is that judgment awaits all who reject the authority of Jesus Christ. Judgment awaits all who refuse to listen to Jesus and his words. Again, the the religious leaders understood exactly what Jesus was saying. They understood he was rebuking them, that he was telling this parable against them. But instead of repenting and and submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ, well, their hearts were hardened, and they looked for a way to put him to death. But again, they feared the people, so they waited. Church, I want you to notice in our sermon passage today that over and over again, Jesus stands on the authority of the word of God. Over and over again, Jesus quotes Scripture to those who are listening. We're going to see it multiple times throughout this passage. He appeals to the authority of Scripture in order to make his arguments. Now, church, Jesus is fully God. Jesus is the Word made flesh. Jesus has authority in himself. His words carry divine authority because he is God. In fact, what gives the Bible its authority is it is it is the very word of God. The Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, are the words of God. Jesus's words are not just the words that we find in red letters in the Gospels. All of scripture are the words of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. All of God's word has equal authority. And so Jesus appealed to Scripture, the Old Testament, during his ministry because the words of the Bible are his words, and therefore they have authority. Well, friends, the heart of sin is to reject God's word. What did Satan do in the garden to Adam and Eve? He asked, did God really say that? Did God really say it's at the heart of sin because to disobey scripture is the same thing as to disobey God it's to fail to listen to his word and so church Jesus in this passage Jesus is teaching us where we should locate our own authority we should locate our own authority in the word of God that is to be the source of authority for the Christian it is the word of God And so, friends, this interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders confronts you with this question. What is your source of authority? What is your source of authority? Is it God's word or is it something else? Now, friends, your source of authority is revealed by what you listen to. It's revealed by by what guides your actions. So, friends, what gets the final say in what you do? When there is a conflict between your desires, what you want, and the Word of God, well, what wins? Do you listen to your desires, or do you listen to the Word of God? Friends, if you're here and single, it may be that you really want to be in a relationship and be married. You might know that God's Word says that Christians are only to marry other Christians, but what do you do when you have an opportunity for a relationship with an unbeliever? Do you follow your heart, or do you follow the word of God? What is your source of authority? Brothers and sisters, we're confronted with this question each and every time that we are tempted to sin. What will we listen to? The sinful desires of our heart? Will we just follow our heart, or will we submit our hearts and bring our hearts into conformity with the word of God? Church, it may not be your heart that you were tempted to make your ultimate authority. It may, like the Pharisees, be the good opinion of others. It may be your culture. Maybe sometimes you think, I know what the Bible says, but that would go against my Filipino culture or my Indian culture or my American culture, and so I'm just going to kind of uh, ignore what the Bible has to say on this issue. I could never confront somebody about their sin because that would be shameful in my culture. Is what the Bible says about sexuality or gender roles in the home and the church really still relevant? I know that the Bible says that all people are created in the image of God, but I could never invite someone of a lower caste to my home for a meal or allow my child to marry them. I know that the Bible says that God has all authority and we can rely on him alone, but when my family gets sick, I still tell them to go pray to their ancestors or seek out the witch doctor. Friends, what is your source of authority? Is it your culture or is it the word of God? Friends, if it is the opinion of others or your culture that guides your actions, your life is built on a foundation of shifting sand. Your belief and your actions, your sense of right and wrong will simply shift with the culture. It'll shift with with popular opinion. Instead, Christians are called to build their life on the firm foundation of God's word. God's word must be the highest source of authority in the life of the Christian and in the life of the church. It is the only firm and reliable foundation for the church. It's the only firm and reliable foundation for your life. Church, this is why the doctrine of inerrancy, the inerrancy of Scripture, is so important. That's a fancy word. Inerrancy simply means this. The Bible contains the very words of God, and it is therefore completely free from error. It is 100% reliable. This is what Pastor Kevin DeYoung writes about the importance of this doctrine, the doctrine of inerrancy, the fact that the Bible is without error. Inerrancy means the Word of God always stands over us and we never stand over the Word of God. When we reject inerrancy, we put ourselves in judgment over God's Word. We claim the right to determine which part of God's revelation can be trusted and which cannot. When we deny the complete trustworthiness of the Scriptures, then we are forced to accept one of two conclusions. Either Scripture is not all from God, or God is not always dependable. Well, friends... Church, Scripture is all from God. Therefore, to reject God's word is to reject God himself. And because Scripture is all from God, it is always dependable. Therefore, Christians are to stand on the unchanging truth and the absolute authority of the word of God. That brings us to the second point of the sermon. The first, questioning the authority of Jesus Second, we see people questioning the wisdom of Jesus. Look at verse 20. They watched closely and sent spies who pretended to be righteous so that they could catch him in what he said, to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. They questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you do not show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But detecting their craftiness, he said to them, "'Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have?' "'Caesar's,' they said. "'Well,' then he told them, "'give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, "'and to God the things that are God's.' "'They were not able to catch him in what he said in public, "'and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. "'Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, "'came up and questioned him. "'Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother has a wife "'and dies childless, his brother should take the wife "'and produce offspring for his brother.' Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, also the second, and the third took her. In the same way, all seven died and left no children. Finally, the woman died too. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven had married her. Jesus told them, the children of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage." For they can no longer die, because they are like angels and are children of God, since they are children of the resurrection. Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living to him. Some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. And they no longer dared to ask him anything. For those of you who are, are teachers, have you ever had one of your students ask you a question in class to try to challenge you or shame you? A question that was meant to puzzle you and make you look foolish in front of the rest of the class to undermine your authority? Well, that's what's going on in these verses. Neither of the two questions asked to Jesus were asked with good faith or with good intentions. These were questions designed to trap Jesus, to Test Jesus, to make Jesus look foolish. And more than that, these were questions designed to get Jesus in trouble, to actually get him put to death. Just look at verse 20. They wanted Jesus to be turned over to the Romans and put to death. That was the purpose of this first question. These were hostile questions. Well, so the first group, they came to Jesus pretending to be righteous, pretending that they truly wanted to, to understand. Uh, they wanted to understand his teaching, so they flattered Jesus before springing their trap and asking their question, is it lawful for us, the Jews, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, Roman law required the Jews to pay taxes. Remember, Israel at this time is under Roman occupation, so Roman law required the Jews to pay taxes. So if Jesus said that it was not lawful to pay taxes, they could accuse Jesus of rebelling against the Roman government. They could turn him over to the authorities and have him arrested and put to death. Well, on the other hand, as one commentator put it, if he said yes, if Jesus says uh, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes, then he would lose the favor of the people. For they hated paying this tax to their pagan oppressors. For many, this tax was an insult to God, who alone was the true ruler of Israel. So not only did the people hate paying the tax, but for some, they thought to acknowledge Rome's authority over Israel, that it was to acknowledge Rome's authority over Israel, which was to deny God's authority over Israel. Well, in his answer, Jesus proved his wisdom to again be far greater than those authorities who questioned him. He gave an answer that both amazed his critics and that left them silent. Jesus said that since Caesar's picture was on a denarius, a denarius was a Roman coin, they should give to Caesar those things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. You could imagine Jesus looking at the currency here in the UAE with all the symbols of the country all over the bills and say give those things that belong to the UAE to the UAE. Now, Jesus was not denying God's ownership of all things. Not at all. God has created all things. God owns all things. The world is not divided between those things that are Caesar's or the UAE's over here and those things that are God's over here. It all belongs to God. However, God has delegated or given some level of authority on earth to government just like he gives some level of authority to parents over children, or an owner of a coffee shop might give some level of authority to one of his managers. Well, all authority comes from God. That is clear in Scripture. All earthly authority comes from the hands of God. But we see throughout Scripture that God delegates authority to different people, government, parents, husbands, elders, managers, the the list just goes on. So that authority is to be stewarded for God's glory. Therefore, because all authority is ultimately comes from God, the Christians are called to obey governing authorities because they have been given authority by God. Christians are called by and large to obey their governing authorities. Just go read Romans chapter 13. Yet God remains sovereign. God is the supreme authority over all other authorities. So if the government commands us as Christians to do something that would violate God's word or tells us that we cannot do something that God commands us to do, like share the gospel, our response must be the same as Peter and the apostles in Acts 5.29. We must obey God rather than man. That's the ultimate answer of the question. Christian. We must obey God rather than man. We obey those earthly authorities as long as they are not violating what God has elsewhere commanded. God must always be our ultimate authority. God is the one who made us. We bear his image, and therefore we owe him our allegiance. He has authority. Well, friends, it was the Sadducees, not the Pharisees, that asked Jesus the next question. The Sadducees were other religious leaders of Israel, but they were actually opponents of the Pharisees. And what is important for you to know about the Sadducees is that they did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in eternal life. They didn't think that was going to happen. So they chose to present an extremely unlikely scenario to Jesus to try to show how foolish it was for Jesus and others to believe in the resurrection of the dead. And now the Old Testament law... You can read about this, commanded a man to marry his brother's widow if his brother had died before an heir had been born. So if his brother and his wife hadn't produced an heir, brother called to marry that widow because no one was there left to care for the widow. There was no son that would care for her in her old age. So that was the command. And so the Sadducees asked what would happen if one woman ended up marrying seven different brothers, one after the other, Because her husband kept dying before a child was ever born. So extremely unlikely, but that's the question. So their point was, well, clearly, she could not be the wife of all seven in eternity. In their minds, that just proved it must be foolish to believe in the resurrection after all. Ah, she can't be the wife of all seven, so gotcha. You know, no resurrection. They thought they had Jesus fooled. But again, Jesus put their wisdom to shame. He showed himself to be wiser still. Jesus told the Sadducees two things. Look at verses 34 through 36. He first said that their question was foolish because they were assuming that life in eternity would be the same as life on earth. Well, Jesus said, Bad assumption, wrong assumption. That's not true. In fact, Jesus said that there would be, there will be no marriage in eternity, it will no longer be needed. Its purpose will have been fulfilled. Newsflash, husbands and wives, you're not going to be married in heaven. But this will not be a disappointment. Something better awaits. Jesus once again quoted scripture to prove in the reality of the resurrection. He once again stood on the authority of the word of God. Now, he pointed out that when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush back in Exodus, he said when he appeared to Moses that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, by that point, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all long dead. But God did not say that he was their God. He said that he is their God. He is presently their God. In other words, though they had died an earthly death, their souls were still alive. They were still living. God is not the God of the dead. God is the God of the living. Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life and brings life to all who submit to his authority. We become children of the resurrection when we are united to Christ, when we have died with him, our sin is put to death, and we are raised to newness of life. We become children of the resurrection. Well, that's what Jesus tells them. So wrong assumption, life's not going to continue the same, and look what actually God said in his word, that he is the God of the living, not the dead. So Jesus again silenced his critics with his great wisdom and with the word of God. Now, church, I know I did not spend a lot of time on the explanations to those questions, so please feel free to ask me more questions about those questions later. Now, the reason, or gum to the men's sermon discussion if you're a guy afterwards, and Pastor Ben will tell you everything you need to know. Now, the, the reason I did not spend more time on the explanation is because what is most important here is not the questions themselves. They're important. They're just not what is most important. What is most important for you to see is the spirit in which those questions were asked. Those who asked the questions were not really interested in the answer, Their goal was to challenge Jesus and his authority. That's the purpose of the questions. So friends, I I want you to hear this clearly, especially if you're here and you're not a Christian. Christianity is a religion that welcomes questions. We are a church that welcomes questions. I want to be a pastor that welcomes your questions. Kids, youth, If you have questions about the Bible or anything related to Christianity, I hope you feel free to ask your parents, and I want you to know that you should feel free to ask me. Friends, unlike some other religions, questions are not a threat to Christianity. As Christians, we should not be afraid of questions because we have the truth on our side. Now, we need to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that we have, but we do not need to fear questions. There are certainly some difficult questions in the Christian faith. Why does evil exist? What happens to people who never hear the gospel? Why should we trust the Bible? Well, friends, it is okay to ask those questions. Biblical faith, biblical faith is faith that seeks after understanding. To follow after God is to seek understanding, to seek to know him more and understand him more. Therefore, it is a good thing to ask questions, even difficult questions. The good news is that the Bible has good answers and that Jesus promises his wisdom to those who truly seek after it. He gives his spirit to believers that we might better understand the truths of God's word. Yes, there are things that we cannot fully understand. There are things to be taken on faith. But Christianity is not a religion of blind faith. That is not Christianity. Faith in Jesus is reasonable. Now, all that being said, we must recognize that people do not always ask questions because they truly want to know the answer. Some people ask questions for the same reasons the Pharisees and Sadducees ask questions of Jesus. Their goal is to challenge Jesus, to reject Jesus, to discredit Jesus. And so sometimes, you may have heard this question, sometimes people will challenge Christians by asking, well, why do you guys follow the Old Testament laws condemning homosexuality but not the ones prohibiting the eating of pork? Now, that's usually meant as a question to make Christians look stupid and inconsistent, foolish, like they don't even know their Bible. It's also a question that's actually very easily answered from the Bible. But those who ask it are not usually interested in the answer. Your Muslim friends and neighbors may challenge you with questions about the trustworthiness of the Bible, saying our translations have been corrupted. They may challenge other things about Christianity. Now, sometimes they may be genuinely seeking to understand. Praise be to God. But sometimes they're just repeating what they've heard to challenge you and to discredit Jesus, to undermine your confidence in Jesus Christ. And again, if they truly desire to understand, are good answers to those questions. Friends, you can be confident in the word of God. The truth is that the hearts of some people are so hardened that they will not listen no matter how good of an answer you provide. Some people are just looking for an excuse to reject Jesus. Friends, some of you may be like that. Maybe you're just looking for excuses to reject God and his word, so you find small things about the Bible to object to. You find small things to question. Maybe you repeat arguments like the Bible is full of errors without investigating to see if that is actually true. Hint, it is not. Friends, you need to ask yourself, are you truly seeking understanding? Or are you just looking for a reason to dismiss what God has said? Friends, if that is you, I would ask you to simply honestly investigate the Bible for yourself. Read it. Take the time to investigate it. Open it. Don't reject Jesus and his authority before you ever take time to find out who he is and what he has said. That brings us to the third and final point of the sermon. Jesus questions the authorities. So in our final verses of this passage, Jesus turns the table on the authorities. They've been questioning him, But now he questions them. Now look at verse 41. Then he said to them, How can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? So Jesus first challenged the religious authorities on their understanding of who the Messiah was to be. And notice, Jesus once again stood on the authority of the Word of God. He quoted Scripture to make his point. In Psalm 110, King David wrote this, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus asked a simple question. If David calls the Messiah Lord, how then can the Messiah be David's son? So back in 2 Samuel 7, God promised King David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne of Israel forever, that God would give him a kingdom that would be established forever. His throne would endure forever. So the Jewish people were rightly expecting the Messiah to be a descendant of David, a son of David, descendant son kind of used interchangeably. But Jesus was using Psalm 110 to prove that the Messiah was more than just a human descendant of David. You would not expect David to call one of his descendants Lord. It would be strange if I began calling my oldest son Josiah Lord Josiah, or said to Caleb or Seth, my Lord. Well, that would make no sense. As much as they would like me to do that, it would make no sense for me to do that. Well, in his humanity, Jesus truly is a descendant of David. But Christians confess that Jesus is so much more. Jesus is more than just the Son of David. Jesus is more than just fully human. At three different times in these verses, Jesus' opponents call him teacher. But friends, Jesus is far more than just a teacher. Jesus is fully God, the one with all authority, the cornerstone of the people of God, the creator whose image we bear the one with all wisdom, the resurrection and the life, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That is who Jesus is. It was not just some man that died on a cross 2,000 years ago. Friends, it was God himself. And that fact is essential to our salvation because it is only God who is mighty to save. It's only God who has the authority to forgive sins. We needed a Savior that was more than just human. We needed a human Savior, but we needed more than just a human Savior. We needed God to save us. And so Jesus came to earth and he lived a perfect life, submitting in all things to the authority of his Father. He produced the fruits of righteousness and justice. On the cross, he paid the penalty for sins for all who would submit themselves to him. He rose again that we might have eternal life, that we might be children of the resurrection. And he ascended to the right hand of God to rule and reign where he exercises all authority even today. And so friends, Jesus confronts you with this question. Who do you say that I am? If Jesus is divine, if he is King of kings and Lord of lords, should you not submit to his authority? Should you not submit to to his word friends that begins with repentance and faith I'm turning to your old sources of authority placing your faith in jesus your new source of authority My friends in these verses jesus did not just challenge the understanding of his opponents he challenged their integrity as well look at verse 45 while all the people were listening he said to his disciples Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. He looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. Friends, in these verses, we see the fruit of those whose source of authority is anything other than Jesus and his word. Remember the parable of the vineyard? The Lord was expecting fruit from this vineyard. We see the rotten fruit of those whose source of authority is anything other than Jesus and his word. We see the fruit of those who seek to please man rather than God. We see the fruit of those who seek their own honor instead of the honor of the Lord. We see the fruit of those who reject Jesus' authority. It is not the fruit that God demanded. Luke 6:45: "A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart." Well the religious leaders had rejected Jesus' authority. It's no surprise that the fruit of, of pride was evident in their lives. They wanted the glory. They wanted the honor. They didn't want to submit to Jesus or give him the glory. Friends, in the same way, your own actions and your own words will give evidence of what your true source of authority is. Your source of authority will produce fruit in your life. So, what evidence, what is your life showing? What is your source of authority? Are you producing the fruits of righteousness, obedience, faith, love, peace, patience, goodness, self-control? In these verses, the religious leaders and the prideful rich are contrasted with the poor widow who gave everything she had to the Lord. This is one who recognized God's authority over all areas of her life. She would held nothing from the Lord. I think it's also a subtle rebuke to the religious leaders who would demand that she give everything that she has to live on. But we see a heart that truly wants to follow after the Lord. On the outside, the religious leaders looked impressive. They had long robes, they said long prayers, they received the approval of men, they had good positions in the church, good positions in society. They were esteemed by man, they had what they wanted. The rich looked outwardly impressive as they gave large amounts of money to the temple. But friends, God does not care about outward appearances. God cares about the heart. The poor widow had nothing by which to earn the approval of men. But in her humble submission to the Lord, she found his favor. As one writer puts it, God sees and approves of those who trust and obey him, even if no one else sees or knows what we are doing. Friends, on the day of judgment, do you want Jesus to say about you what he said about those people who had the approval of man, the religious leaders? Or do you want him to look on you as he looked on this poor widow? Friends, true reward comes not in following your heart, but in following the Lord. And so, church, as we close, let me urge you to submit yourself to the authority of Jesus. As opposed to the religious leaders of his day, Jesus exercises his authority for your good. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He does not use his authority to oppress, but to lift up. He is gentle, not harsh. Friends, people in our day are skeptical of authority. And sometimes they have good reason for the skepticism. In our fallen world, authority is sometimes abused. But friends, Jesus has never given you any reason to doubt his goodness or his love. He has never abused his authority and he never will. He, Jesus, is the only sure and steady anchor of the soul. Friends, let me urge you to submit yourself to him. Submit yourself to his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come and, Father, we come in thanks that you have all authority. Father, so often in our lives, we want to be the ones in charge. Father, we wish somebody else was in charge, somebody else was directing our lives, but Father, we don't have to wish that about you. Father, you are only good, only wise, only loving, only compassionate. Father, you only seek the good of your people. You do not withhold any good thing from your people. Oh, Father, how happily and how joyfully we can submit ourselves to your authority. Father, keep us from the temptation, keep us from the lies of the world, keep us from the lies of the evil one that would tell us that we should not listen to you, we should not listen to your word, that we will find more joy and satisfaction in chasing the passing pleasures of sin. Oh, Father, we pray that we would not go astray, we would not listen to those lies. Father, we pray that instead we would behold wondrous things in your word. It would be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Father, we pray that we would delight ourselves in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.